That passage that Janine just read, of course, is from 1 Peter chapter 1. And so if you have your Bible, would love for you to go ahead and open up there. We're going to be walking through that passage. If you don't have a Bible this morning, as always, grab the one in the pew or the seat in front of you and make it your own. Unless it's somebody else's. I always say that. If it's somebody else's Bible that you see, don't take their Bible. Take one of the ones that we provide as a church. Make it your own. 1 Peter is in the very back of the New Testament. Now, as you think about this, last Sunday we started this brand new sermon series that we are calling Different. First Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to these Christians that were scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. These Christians that he's writing to had many differences. They were of different ethnicities. They spoke different language. They had different religious backgrounds. Some were Jews. Some were Gentiles. They had different customs, but none of those differences or what we are talking about in this sermon series. You see, the underlying thought, the main point of the book of 1 Peter is that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should be radically different than the culture around us. There should be distinguishing marks in our life that that make it crystal clear that, that we are different than those who not believe in Jesus Christ. There should be no mistaking the differences. Now, I realize sometimes in life it's very easy to figure out that you're different than the people around you. I've told you this story before, but a few years ago, Rachel and I went to Hawaii, and we were looking for good waves for boogie boarding, and a local there gave us an insider tip about this secluded beach that you could hike to. Well, Rachel and I hiked down to this secluded beach, and we were so mesmerized by the ocean waves and the great boogie boarding that we failed to realize that right next to us, the other 100 people on this beach, out of that whole group, we were the only ones with swimsuits on, okay? It was a nude beach, and so all of a sudden, we look at them, they look at us, they stop their naked volleyball or doing whatever they're doing, and it was very clear in that moment, we, in that context, were outsiders. We didn't fit, right? Well, what Peter is saying is that there should be distinguishing marks in the life of a Christian where it's very clear. You are, he says in the passage, exiles. In verse 1 and 2, that's what he says. He says, you as Christians are exiles. It doesn't matter if you're living in Rome or if you're living in Turkey or today, if you're living in America. Your primary citizenship is not of this world which means your allegiance isn't to a country, it's not to a leader, it's not to a political party. Instead, he says, all of these things should be shaped by the reality that Jesus is the Lord of your life. You are an exile. You are different. Jesus himself, when he talks about his believers, says this, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But here's the reality. I think all of us can acknowledge the fact that being different is not always easy. It's very hard. And I don't think anybody in this room likes to be considered an outsider by your family or your friends or those in your social network or or even those at work. There are times where our beliefs and our faith cause us to be alone. There are times where our priorities and our values, they clash with the values and priorities of the world. And there's this conflict that happens between us and our values and the world and their values. And we are so easily get swayed into the culture around us. It is not easy. Well, lest you think that that is a modern day problem, you need to understand that these early Christians were experiencing this reality, even at a level greater than we have known here in America. 
You see, many of these Christians, because of their faith, had been disowned by their families. Many of them had been kicked out of work. They had lost their means of an income. Others had been literally kicked out of their country, out of their homeland. All of them were under the threat of persecution with the idea that they, because of their faith, could die. Nero was the emperor that was coming into power during this time. And if you've studied the history of Rome, you know that he would be one of the greatest persecutors of Christians in history. So that was the threat that they're living under because of their faith, because they were different, because they were set apart. Conflict was part of their life. It was hard. And so Peter is writing to these early Christians and he's writing them to say this, Christians, no matter what it takes, it is worth it. No matter how different you may feel, it is worth it. That is Peter's reminder to these Christians. I would imagine that for many of you in this room, that's a reminder you need to hear today and over and over and over again. I would imagine some of you enter this room and you're tired. Some of you enter this room and you're discouraged. Some of you are just tired of constantly having this tension of how do I be in the world but not of the world? How do I be close to my friends and yet be a witness for Christ? How do I do all these things? We feel this tension. We have fears and all these things. And Peter is reminding you this morning, it is worth it. And so this morning, let's understand why it's worth it. He reminds us of a few truths, but he starts out before layering all these things. He starts out with verse 3, which I think is amazing. What does he say in verse 3? He starts out with worship. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, upon first glance, that seems like it's out of place, right? Verses 1 and 2, he says, my name's Peter, and I'm writing Christians in this place and this place. And then, boom, all of a sudden, he just breaks out in worship. But when you hear why he's worshiping, it makes sense. Keep reading. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, I cannot help but worship because here's the reality. And then he reminds us of a few things. And that's what I want us to walk through this morning. The first thing that he reminds us of is this, that God has shown us great mercy. What Peter is saying with this beautiful language is, I cannot help but worship Because God has not treated me like I deserved. Now I realize that there may be some of you in this room that you kind of walk through life feeling like you deserve a lot. I deserve these good things. I deserve all these things that God has done. I'm, I'm very deserving. But Peter understood the opposite to be true. When Peter looked at his life, he saw the reality that he was a sinner. That he, like all people, have rebelled against God. He had done what he wanted to do instead of what God called him to do. He had thought he knew what was best for his life instead of trusting that God knew what was best for his life. He had sinned. And so when he looked at his life, he saw himself not as deserving of all these good things. He says, because of how I've treated God, my creator, I deserve judgment. I deserve to be separated from him. But he says, I can't help but rejoice because why? God has actually treated me opposite of what I deserve. He has treated me according to, what does it say there? His great mercy. 
What's the evidence of God's mercy? Well, that's what Peter moves on to when he reminds them not only has God shown them great mercy, but the evidence of that is number two, God has caused us as Christians to be born again. The evidence of his mercy is in what he has done for us. Now, if you're new to First SF or maybe you're new to this idea of Christianity and the gospel and all these things, that concept, I realize, may sound very, very odd. What does it mean for a person to be born again? How is that even possible? Well, you need to understand that he's, Peter is not talking about a physical birth. He's simply reiterating what Jesus had said when he was alive. If you go to John chapter 3, you're going to find that Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus. I love the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which in essence means that he was, had done very well in life. He had done very well. He was wealthy. He was a pillar of the community. He was a picture of moral excellence and religious adherence. Anybody that knew Nicodemus would have seen him as a person deserving of being in the kingdom of God. He knew the scriptures. He obeyed the law. He did all things right. He would be deserving of the kingdom of God if anybody is deserving. But then he comes to Jesus and he asks him about the kingdom. And I want you to hear what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, you're doing a great job, so just tweak things here, tweak things there, and, and you're good. No, he looks at this very religious man, this very good man. He says, you don't understand. You need a spiritual birth. You need to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. You need a new spiritual DNA. You need to be completely changed. You need to be born again if you want to enter my kingdom. Friends, it does not matter how good or bad you think you are this morning. It doesn't matter how many great uh, donation things you've done or how many good deeds you've done, how many ways that you've served. None of us on our own can go from spiritual death to spiritual life. We can't do it. Our sin is too deep. We cannot save ourselves. We needed God to do something for us. And that's why Peter's worshiping. He's saying God has done it. In Jesus Christ, in his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, he has provided a new birth. He's made us into new creations to those who have trusted in him. We have received grace. We have received mercy because he has made us into a new creation. He has breathed spiritual life into us. I can't help but worship. Following Jesus is worth it because he's given me spiritual life. But it doesn't stop there. Because he says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. But he doesn't stop because what does he say? Born again into a living hope. God has provided us with a living hope. I want to kind of center in the sermon on this one part because this is so important. I believe the world is desperately longing for hope. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the confusion, all these different things, we, we long for this idea of hope. You say, what is hope? Well, I think at its core, hope is this idea that human beings can be shaped in the present by their understanding of the future. If you're taking notes, write that down. Hope is this idea that human beings can be shaped in the present by our understanding of the future. Hope says that what you believe about your future actually changes the way you live today. 
Now, I saw the, the power of hope even in my home this week with my daughter. Uh, one of our daughters is named Allie, and last Saturday, a week ago, she was having a pretty bad day. It was one of those typical preschool bad days, fighting with siblings, crying for no reason, the world is against me. Some of you, that describes your week probably, but that was my daughter last Saturday. Well, finally, I had had enough. I was frustrated with her, and I, was, I went down, and I sat down with her, and I somewhat used manipulation. I sat down, I looked her right in the eye, and I said, Allie, you are going to Disneyland in two days, which was true. I did not lie, okay? She really was going to Disneyland. You're going in two days. What do you have to be sad about? Well, a while back, Rachel and I had decided every fifth birthday, we're going to do a special one-on-one trip, a parent and a kid. And so Rachel was taking her two days later. The moment I said those words, I'm not kidding. My daughter went from this sad, crying face to all of a sudden, this is the greatest day in the world. I'm happy. Nothing could be wrong. Her view of the future, her understanding of her future radically rechanged how she felt the present, right? That is the power of hope. And these Christians were in desperate need of hope. They were suffering. They were conflicted. They had trials and battles. The culture was waging war against their belief in Jesus Christ. And they needed hope in the midst of their suffering. I don't think that they are alone this morning. The quest for hope in the midst of pain and sadness is a universal human experience. There's a pastor named Tim Keller that once preached a message on hope. And in that sermon, he referenced the work of a man named Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish-Austrian psychoanalyst that had been imprisoned at Auschwitz. During his time at Auschwitz, he had noted how different people responded to their suffering, and he ended up writing a book about this called Man's Search for Meaning. I want you to hear how these different individuals handled their situation based on their hope. In that work, he said that some of the prisoners responded to their hopeless situation by becoming brutal and cruel themselves. When they began to lose hope, they began to become bitter and angry, and they began to take it out on the prisoners around them. Others, Frankel said, just gave up. He wrote these words. He said, usually this happened quite suddenly the symptoms of which were familiar to experienced camp inmates. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just laid there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. Others, Frankel said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive and they made it through the concentration camp, then that their families and their livelihoods and their status and the position of the world would be restored to them. Well, the unfortunate thing, of course, is that when they got out of the camps, they realized that those things were gone forever. Many of them lost their families. They lost their social standing. They lost their possessions forever. And that caused the majority of those individuals, he said, to be depressed and many more to commit suicide in the days after they were released. I want you to hear what Frankel says at the end. He says, the only ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point beyond this world. Something they held on to that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. 
At the end of his book, he ends with this line, Life in a concentration camp tears open a soul and exposes its depth and its foundations. Now, I tell you all that because I want you to see that's the point that Peter is making in this book and especially in this text. He's saying that that trials and pain, they reveal what our hope is really in. Far too often, even Christians place their hope, it's more of a dying hope because it's placed in circumstances. We think, one day I'm going to get the recognition I deserve. One day I'm going to get a family. One day I'm going to get that job that I deserve. One day I'm going to get this. One day I'm going to get that. And we put our hope in these circumstances. Friends, that is a dying hope. Why? Because one of two things is going to happen with that hope. Either you're going to achieve that hope, it's going to be lived out, and you're going to find that it's not truly satisfying. Or what most of the time happens, those things we put our hope in don't come to be. And when we realize that that's not going to come to be, what happens? We get, like he said, we get depressed. We get discouraged. Or we just give up hope. We get down. We think nothing can make this right. But Peter looks at these Christians and he looks at us today and he says, Church, you are different. You have a different kind of hope. You have a living hope. What is this living hope? It's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the text. He says this. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want you to think for a moment about what the resurrection must have meant for Peter. The day Jesus died, the day he was crucified, no doubt had to be the darkest moment of Peter's life. Peter had staked all his hopes on the reality that this Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for, the one that could save from sin, the one that could usher in the kingdom of God. That was his hope. And yet there was his hope dead on a cross. If that were not bad enough, what had Peter done? He had denied him three times leading up to the crucifixion. Imagine the pain and agony and discouragement of that Friday and Saturday after the the crucifixion. And yet, as we know, Sunday came, right? Jesus went to the tomb and ran in there and it was empty. And then Jesus appeared to Peter. And in that moment, just imagine it, his sadness was turned to joy. His his despair was turned to triumph as he realized God had a plan all along. The Friday and Saturday were painful, yes, but there was a Sunday coming that reversed all the pain of Friday and Saturday. Through the crucifixion, there was resurrection. See, what Peter is getting at in this passage is that, yes, we are living in a kind of Friday-Saturday world, right? We're exiles. There's pain, there's suffering, there's hardships. Christians are not uh, away from pain. We live in pain. We live in trials. And yet he says there is a Sunday coming. There is a resurrection coming. And Jesus, because he was resurrected, it means something meaningful for you. Because here's the thing, when Jesus was resurrected, it proved that everything Jesus said was true. It proved it was true. And this is what Jesus had said, John 11, verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, Christian, this is your future. 
And yet it's not just about your future. That should change your present. We have a living hope. This living hope is grounded in the past and what Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. It's experienced in the present. And then finally he ends with this picture that it is guaranteed in the future. What does he say? He says, we also, God is protecting for us an eternal inheritance. Verse 4. It says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see what Peter is trying to do? He's layering upon phrase upon phrase to help us to see how blessed we are as the people of God. He says, you see, you have a living hope. And in that living hope, it means that God is your father. You're his children. And what that guarantees is that God as your father is saving up an inheritance for you. But this isn't like any other physical inheritance. As good as the physical inheritances of this life are, he says, those are going to go away with time. But he says, this inheritance that God has for you, look at it. What does he say? It is imperishable, which means it's not touched by death and decay. It is undefiled, which means it's not touched by sin or any kind of moral impurity. It is unfading. The ravages of time don't have anything on it. And if that were not enough, what does he say? God is the one keeping this for you. Which means what? It's untouchable. There's no one that can take this away. Just like Romans 8 said, there's nothing, no power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor rulers, nor anything in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, this is waiting for you. I want you to think about what this would have meant for these early Christians who had lost everything. They'd been disowned by their families, kicked out of their homeland. Their hopes for a physical inheritance were shattered. But he says, look, you have a different kind of inheritance. Because you have a living hope, because Jesus has risen from the dead and you believe in him, you've trusted him with your life, you have an inheritance that is untouchable from the things of this life. And what that does is it reshapes the way that we see our trials. Instead of being destroyed by our trials, he says you can rejoice in the midst of trial. Not because you're not feeling pain. He says, but you have a living hope in the midst of that pain. Verse 6, look at it. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. I love that. Did you notice that both of those things were in present tense? He says, You are at the same time filled with grief because of pain, and yet filled with rejoicing because of hope. It's not that one comes and then the other and you go back and forth. He says at the very same time, you're both grieving and you have hope. You say, Ryan, how is that possible? Well, here's the thing. If your hope is in circumstances, it's not possible. If your circumstances are are what's going to be the gauge of your hope, then I'm just telling you, things are good, you're going to be good. Things go down, you're going to go down. But if your hope is Jesus, a resurrected Lord, if he's the ultimate love, if he's the ultimate value, then what happens when trials come? When those circumstances change, what does it do? It pushes you further and further, closer and closer to your greatest hope, Jesus Christ. And so instead of destroying you, 
What does it do? It purifies you. It makes you more and more like Christ. It brings you closer to him. It brings you into a relationship with him. He says that is what a living hope is all about. Now, this morning, I could go on and could continue to go verse by verse through these things. And I know that would be helpful. But this morning, I thought instead that it would be more powerful, that it would be more helpful for you to see how this actually plays out in real life. You see, a lot of times we only hear testimonies after we've come out of the fire. Very few times do we actually hear from those who are walking in the fire and yet have a, have a true living hope. Well, I'd like you to hear such a testimony. Uh, this last weekend, I have the privilege, Rachel and I, of hosting, I will tell you this, one of the key men, godly men that God used to influence my life. I can say this, I would not be the person or minister I am today without a man named Donnie Grigg. When I was in 8th and ninth grade uh, growing up in Arkansas, Donnie was first my um, Sunday school teacher, and then he became my youth pastor. But even more than that, Donnie and his wife Amy literally invited me into their lives. He poured into me. He challenged me in ministry. He put me in situations that caused me to grow and grow my faith. But this last weekend, I had the privilege of having Donnie and his 14-year-old son, Titus, with us. They actually came from Arkansas to help us with our respite. They literally flew here to help us with that event and spend time with us. And so we had the privilege of being with them. Donnie and his son, Titus, right now are in the midst of a trial. And yet they are doing so, I can proudly say, with a living hope. This is a trial that's hard. It's hard for me to even talk about. But I wanted Donnie to come this morning and just to share a bit about what he and his family have been walking through and how they have a living hope in the midst of that. Donnie, if you would come forward. Church family, would you welcome Donnie Grigg? Thank you, church. It's so good to be with you this morning. I could go on and on about how amazing this gentleman you have as your pastor and his wife and his family. But today I have the privilege to stand before you and to share a little bit about our story, which is really his story, God's story through us. In life, we don't get to pick and choose which journeys we get to go down, do we? There's journeys that we have to walk through that we would never, ever, ever pick for ourselves or for our loved ones. And back in 2009, in December of 2009, in January of 2010, my son woke up three times with a major, major headache, which caused him to vomit and throw up and be sick. We took him to the doctor, expecting him to tell us it was just migraines. Um, he asked us to go get an MRI, just to make sure we can rule that out. As we went on January 18th of 2010 to go through this procedure. We were expecting just to hear no problems, no issues. And the doctor came out and asked us to go into a room privately to inform us that our son had a brain tumor that needed to be operated on ASAP. So they rushed us down to Texas Children's Hospital. Um, and there's so many God stories and God events, this whole story, but I'm just going to give you a snippet of what happened. Um, the next morning by 7 a.m., he had a brain surgery. 
over the next course of 2010, from January 18th through the course of all the way to August of that year, my son, they also found out, had cancer in the spinal cord as well. So he was considered a high-risk patient with not a whole lot of chance of survival, which caused my wife and I, who were in the ministry, uh, serving as executive pastor of a church in Texas, to just hit us to our core. Like I said, not a path we would ever choose for ourselves or any of our loved ones. We were told from the get-go that through chemo and radiation that we're going to give him max capacity what the body at his age as a six-year-old can handle, knowing full well that if it ever came back, there's nothing they could do. So fast forward from that trial to being getting MRIs every three months for several years. Uh, we were on. We had just felt the call to go plant a church in Arkansas. So we uprooted from this church in 2014 to go plant a church in Arkansas. As we as we just arrived in Arkansas, the next couple of months as we're preparing to launch this church, we were going back to our last visit to be considered a long-term survivor. Uh, it was on that visit that we were told they found a tumor on the brain again. So they gave him three more doses of radiation at max capacity. They can't give him any more at all. And it's at that point where we really struggled with our faith, knowing that, God, you, you asked us, you called us to go plant a church, and now we have this before us. You don't get to pick and choose the paths you, you travel down. Last October in 2016, my son went in for an MRI and they found four tumors on the brain. The doctors pretty much said without saying, there's nothing we can do for you. There's no hope. Let me backtrack just a couple of years. On February 12th, 2012, on a Sunday evening at my house, the Lord saved my son Titus. Back in 2010, when I was really struggling with this whole situation of, of my son's situation, as I was walking down this hall at Texas Children's Hospital, the Lord spoke to me so clear and says, do you trust me? And I knew at the time we were about to hear some bad news, some more bad news. And I said, yes, Lord, I trust you. And I heard the voice again, but it came more firm. No, do you trust me? I said, yes, Lord, I do trust you. And I heard these words, then I will heal him. Ladies and gentlemen, on February 12th, 2012, the Lord healed my son spiritually. He's given him, as well as he's giving us, this living hope. As we walked in the Texas Children's Hospital, and we walked into every appointment we had to go through, we witnessed and experienced as we looked into the eyes 
of so many families experiencing the same trial we're experiencing. We saw such lack of hope, such weariness. And at that point, we were able to not, as some people would say to us, how are you still breathing, living, existing, doing life, and still preaching Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) Because this is the reason. Our trials and our circumstances do not change the gospel. It's the gospel that changed our response to our trials. That's why we can come here to serve First Baptist San Francisco and go back to our church that we call to plant and preach Jesus and to serve others and do what he's called us to do. My son Titus and myself and my entire family because of the gospel. That's why we're here today. That we can worship with you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Going through our trial that we have no idea what the outcome will be on this earth. But I'll tell you one thing. We both have a living hope. I'm not promised tomorrow, just like you're not promised tomorrow. But I sure do long for the place that God has prepared for me. I can stand before you and say, I praise him in the midst of the storm. That's what Peter's talking about. Each of us have our own levels of trials and temptations and circumstances that we're going through. No matter how small or how difficult it may seem to you, if the Lord is your life, the gospel should be able to change change your response to these trials. That's why you can come here on a Sunday morning lift up your hand and say, I praise you in the midst of this storm. All praise and glory to my Father, my God, my Savior, my Redeemer. Amen. So church family, I'm just asking, do you have a living hope? We don't get to choose our trials. We don't get to choose the path. I thank you for saying that, Donnie. But because of Christ, we do have hope. I pray that you'll hold on to that hope, that you'll hear Peter's message, that you'll know and see that he has reminded us, he has acted toward us with great mercy. He has given us a living hope. He has given us an inheritance that can never be taken away.